0: History Lecture 76, rather Bleyweiss. We almost finished discussion of the Karaites. The 1300s. Okay, so that I was about right. The 1300s. That time of the Rishonim is when Merchant of Venice would have taken place. Fine. The, um... We talked about the Karaites and some of their, we, we, we pointed out in general, when you reject Torah Shabbal Peh, the oral Torah, inevitably you're going to invent your own, and I argue, wacky equivalent or, or, or substitute for the oral Torah that we saw was very relativistic, subjective. Whatever you taught uh, could be subject to lots of interpretations. Um, the, the Karaites, you should realize, were a major threat Uh, among other reasons, like the tzeduki, they presented an alternate Judaism. Remember, it's one of the first sects that Jews would know post Talmudic period. And for the Jews, if you were lazy or had a large Yitzhahara, you could potentially adopt this mode of living and still somehow feel like you were Jewish. You remember that the, I mean, we, we, we forget this, as Jews from the liberal Western cultures have relative freedom you don't have to be from don't get any ideas i'm not suggesting that you uh, that you leave your you, that you leave the yeshiva or throw off your key for the shalom but you you were all very very aware in the time that we're living in that all of this is an option you can volu- you can be a voluntary jew in or you could you could opt out just as easily um that's relatively unique in history most of the time the jews were stuck it's not like the non-Jewish world was open to you. You could integrate, you could live outside the Jewish quarters. Most of the Jewish world, wherever they lived, were ghettoized. Now, often the ghetto was self-chosen. Jews didn't want to live with the Goim, but even if they wanted to, they couldn't. So that the fact that in organized Jewish life, you had an option now to live as a Karaite. With an, and, and remember, the Muslims recognized Anan ben David and they recognized his disciples and thereby the community, that was something that was an alternative. And so if you, let's say, not only a Sahara, but let's say you had a, uh, an, a quarrel with the rabbinic establishment, you could say, oh yeah? Well, I'm just going to go and be a Karaite. So they were, they were a major threat uh, to the jews among other reasons torah is an old torah is an obligation it's a burden it's it's that and and so um if you had an easier substitute many people would opt for it and at one point it appeared at least that the Karaites might rise up and swallow normative judaism as it were go ahead um, so so yesterday we were talking about like on day 75 we were talking about the Karaites and how he was arrested and then he said that he was going to make his own religion when we, our last talk, yeah, we talked about right. Anon went out. I mean, I simplified the story, but effectively, he was dissatisfied with the Jews and he eventually manipulated his way and into his. Into, into into to make a new religion. And then it turned out it worked, so he actually did make a new religion. Right, but we still accept them as Jews, though. We don't accept the Christians as well, Jews. Like because Jews. halachically, once a person is Jewish, he's Jewish. So a person can profess another <laughs> set of beliefs, but technically and, and, and genealogically, they're Jewish. The Christians, if they would, had remained Jews like the early Christians were, well, then they would be Jewish too. But we know that the Christians from the time of Peter and Paul, they turned to the pagan world, and so the majority of the Christians in the world became non-Jews. The other Jew, the, the, those who were Jewish lost their distinct identity we can't identify them as such. So it's true, there are probably lots of Jew- assimilated Jews or descendants of Jews out there who would never in a million years even know that they're Jewish. But they're lost. But the Karaites are not lost. They remained a, distinguished, a, a distinct community, Lidoridoros Doros, as Karaites, so we can assume that they are Jews, but as we said, in a very compromised position of being Suffolk mums according to many of the Ashkenazi poskim. So, I mean, one of the complications, too, <laughs> according to the Karaites, they reject the rabbinic notion of matrilineal descent. I don't know if you realize the ramifications of that. They, in other words, accept that anybody, I mean, and it's very relevant to determining are they Jewish or not, anybody who descends from their father, patrilineal descent, is considered, as far as they're concerned, Keraite. Um, and how do they have conversion if they accept Hashem, and they do a bris milah, they can take a nether before basting and maybe join, and that's a giur. And so it's entirely possible, and maybe even plausible, that there are Karaites who indeed are not Jewish, whose fathers were uh, were Jewish, their mothers were not, or alternately they converted. Um, and so indeed they are not Jewish. And what we can say in response to that is that because of the persecution over the years, uh, the, the non-Jews, the anti-Semites, uh, didn't didn't uh, really distinguish, as far as they were concerned, Karaites, Jews, Rabbinic Jews, all, the, all of them were the same, and they were ostracized, and therefore there wasn't so much of a chance to assimilate. Similarly, if there weren't so many people who joined the ranks of the Karaites, so practically this may not have come up so often over the centuries, but it's entirely possible that some of them are going. What, what religion they okay. create? No. Well, that was what we discussed in our last class. Oh, okay. They created what's, what they call the Kara, Kra from Mikra, the religion that embraces Torah, what they claim is the written Torah, but they reject all of Chazal, which we would say effectively they reject everything. Because you don't have an understanding of the written Torah without the Oral, uh, oral Torah right, to guide they you. They did get a bris, because they claimed that, that part that's in the, is in the Torah, is in the written Torah. So what, what do you mean if they get a bris? Well, their conversions are not halakhically kosher. So So even if they have a bris, we wouldn't count that as kosher bris. Among other other things, your bris has to be l'shem shemaim. The mo'el has to be a certified mo'el. They won't have any of that. So you mean you just uh, mean hatafat or whatever? Like they're not going to get bris because they're all circumcised, anyways. I'm saying a convert. If somebody wanted to convert to being a Karaite, that's their procedure. Um, But we wouldn't recognize their converts. So memela, they have people who call themselves who identify as part of the Karaite community, but they're not technically Jewish, halachically. So uh, that's a more complicated answer to Barak's question, are they Jewish, are they not? The answer is probably most of them are. Some of them may not be, and we won't know that. <laughs> uh, so we've been talking about that. So stay with me, I'll give you the postscript of this, but let me, let me just point out um, a few of their oddities and some of the discussion that the, some of the great sages had with them. They claim, according to the written Torah, that it's User to marry one's niece. But I didn't say that anywhere in the Torah. In fact, it says quite differently. They, they claim they learn a comparison from the prohibition since it's usher for a man to marry his aunt. They understand that it must be a simple, straightforward extension of that, that it's usher for an, uh, an uncle to marry his niece. Um, yeah, they, they claim this is the logical, simple meaning of the text. Um, <laughs> but when they say this, this makes, as far as they're concerned, the Jews suffic Mamzerim, and thereby the Frum <laughs> Karaites wouldn't marry a Jew, so there. Because we talked about last class, our issue, and we talked about the whole concept of a Suffolk Mamzer as most of the Ashkenazi post scheme have by the Karaites, that we can't marry them, so they, for their part, ha ha, can't, wouldn't marry us either, at least if they knew better. Um, You should realize, yes, they exist today. Um, They have the same problems that the Jewish community have with assimilation, with the pull of the modern, and um, they have very few I don't like to use the word from, but, you know, religious or devout or practicing Karaites in the world, most of them, most of them are disappearing too with assimilation. The, um, here's what the Kaft of Aferach, the great sage who, lit, who made Aliyah 102 years, uh, 702 years ago, one of my heroes, um, he, says, he says in refutation of this idea that they claim uh, that it's, it's prohibited for an uncle to marry his niece he said, what are you talking about? You people, you Karites, and he had this debate and he records it. He said, you people, you accept the authority of the Tanakh. Well, open your own Tanakh and notice in the book of Shoftim, go ahead. Come on, you, you history buffs. Who should we notice in the book of Shoftim? Right, Mordechai Merides, but he's going earlier. Go to the, and, and really, it's funny, it's interesting, how you could go back to Avram and Sarah. You could. Amram and Yocheved thats him marrying his aunt—and that's a Gemara and Sanhedrin that explains how that works. That's not—that's a different question. We're talking about an uncle marrying. We hold the a man can't marry his aunt; he can marry his niece. I thought, I thought yeah, right? Amram married his aunt gonna argue that. by his father, not by his mother, and that's—and since it was—it was, it was, it was still considered Bnei Noach. That's how the Gemara and Sanhedrin gets around that. They're going to argue that was Jew. Right, so that's B'nai Noach. So let's go, fine. The Kaft of Aferuch, therefore, picks in the early generations of Jews after Mount Entira from Sefer Shoftim, and so far, nobody's given the answer. Osnio. Ooh, good, are you good? Very good, are you? Did you just look it up? No, I did not. Okay, good, good, got it. Very <laughs> impressed. Othnia, but who, what's the connection? Do you remember this? Well, assuming we've it It's true. <laughs> I, yeah, how did you remember that? <laughs> Kalev and Osniel were brothers. Kalev oh, gave, yeah. gave his daughter Achsa, and I mentioned this when we learned it. Kalev gave his daughter Aksa to Otniel. It's a whole discussion. Yeah, in right. Sefer Yoshua and also in Sefer Shoftim yeah, at the, the very beginning, the halakha, right? right? He says, they were the Gidoli Hador, look at your Masorah sheets, look about Kalev and Osniel, they were clearly leader, leading, leading lights of the Jewish people, meaning inherently by their own account, actually maybe they're not there. They, 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 there's a question whether they belong. Uh, Osniel is there, I think, No. You'll take a peek. The um, clearly, by the by, the Karaite's own wisdom, it means that it's permitted for a man to marry his niece. He said. He said. Then the Kaftev takes it. Go ahead. Uh, do 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 they see themselves as a uh, split off group from the Jews or do they have no do they consider themselves form? the normative Jews right okay, so they and they, they claim to follow the written <coughs> the written shot of the text of the of not just the Torah but the Tanakh too right, 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 but their history is that at one point the Jews became corrupt and then they fixed it because no no, like, no that's more you're thinking <laughs> of the Shomroni. no I don't, but I'm just curious like what yeah they the believe that the rabbinic yeah no they yeah no I'm sorry you're right the Karaites think that the rabbinic Jews are off and that there's nothing they would say Lav to all of rabbinic Judaism not necessarily so we think you guys have an oral tradition that's made up and we make up our own and ours is better than yours okay. that's, that's what they claim and, and do they believe in this guy uh, the guy who created the Kira movement? Uh, yeah, Anand bin David, he's, there, he's yeah. their mentor now, the Kaatmah continues he says if marrying one's niece is, is prohibited well then they you know, in theory the, if you want to take the Torah literally he says you should marry your daughter because the Torah never prohibits explicitly marrying your own daughter. Okay, now Chazal learned from heckish one can one can marry because from Basabas, bas you can marry you can't marry your granddaughter. So clearly, as an extension, you can't marry your 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 daughter's daughter. You certainly can't marry your daughter. But 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 according to according to the Karaites, you shouldn't even be able to marry. You should be able to marry your daughter. Katzuv VeVerach says. Therefore, by the way, there's another. There's uh, there's some other famous Jews who um, the uncle married the niece. I'm thinking of the Nitziv of Vilozhn. The Nitziv of Uh Vilozhn married Uh his sister's daughter, the sister, the wife of the uh, Aruch HaShulchan, famously. And there are others too. Anyway, the bottom line to this, the Katzuv VeVerach, hold the thought for just a moment. He says. They have an arbitrary relativist system. The only reason that they learned some prohibition about marrying the niece is because they got it from the Kutim. They got it from the Shomronim, And the Shamronim got it from the Ishmaelim, the Arabs. Yeah, but that also causes problems sometimes, no? No, but I'm saying he's saying they just they were influenced by this and that. The other thing was arbitrary, it wasn't systematic. And it, he, he concludes, he says, me <laughs> Anybody who's not in the oral system of Torah, ain't the Torah shebichtav, is simultaneously not in the written system of Torah. He doesn't have any Torah. Fair and as we, as as, as I tried to, I, um, as I tried to argue in our last class on the subject, um, it's a package deal. You cannot have the written without the oral. how can the say that you can marry your daughter No, no, no. They don't. They don't say. They say you cannot marry your daughter. But the of Veferach simply. Takes their own line of thinking and turns it against them. He said, "In theory, you should be—you should say it's it's Motor. from your line of thinking." Okay. But there you go. I mean, sure, I even—I even—I was looking to learn with her a little bit. Yeah. So that was okay, right? Even though it was a little weird, in modern times. Like, I just said that the uh, I mean, Nitzib was also relatively modern. No, the end of the nineteenth like, century. Fine, but that's like. It was like a generation, a couple generations before the so, what's the difference? I, okay, I know weird. lots of people. I know a lot of first cousins who were married. Really? Yeah. You know? Uh, y'all, who came for for Shabbos? One of our one of our hosts over Shabbos is married to his first cousin. Oh, uh, uh, not, so not odd. odd. It's normal so so in the It's so 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 like, 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 like a recipe for genetic disaster. No, they have the greatest kids. Great family. Yeah, I mean, During the beginning of the year, you told us uh, 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 about Rabbi uh, yeah, yeah. marrying his first cousin. Does, that, does he never look at any women? And he accidentally yeah, saw her, yeah, and it's yeah, just yeah. and there's a reason for it was yeah, because I never look at women, and I saw Yachanli. It yeah. must be a sign from Hashem that I. Are supposed to marry me? I don't know. This, I don't remember the story. I told oh, you that. Yeah, I mean, Yeah, you yeah, did. <laughs> uh, oh, actually, I been Benjamin Orso. That he always wore blinders on his on his face. And he married yeah. his first cousin. And because she, <coughs> she, him to yeah. she brought him some food? Oh yeah, he would, he would always sit in his room and learn, and yeah. then his, his first cousin would always drop up, us out the door, knock and walk away. One time, I didn't tell the story, but yeah, I'm you should tell the story. Fine, so I'm, I'm innocent. Okay, um, okay. The Khuzari, the Balak also addresses the Karaites. He also says, he also mm-hmm. says the same thing without the oral, you can't understand the written. He says, and listen to the Kuzari. So he's typically eloquent on the subject. I wish, he writes, the Karaites could give me a satisfying answer to these questions. Let them explain where the tail of the sheep, which they say is prohibited, ends. In other words, they they say like we say that it's prohibited, but without a normal tradition, you don't know where the tail ends. You need Chazal, you need the rabbis to teach you such a thing. Why, he continues, do they prohibit some acts on Shabbos, but then have no problem arbitrarily lifting a heavy book or a table or entertaining guests? What, the guest that rests while the host works? He says, I'd like for the Karaites to answer these questions. They can't. But how can they have guests? Because I thought they believe that you have to stand still. Exactly. Himself. Meaning it's an, it's an inconsistent, non-refined, non-developed, <laughs> non-system. That's, that's inevitably what, what, what our, our sages have argued. Um, now, they used to reject the term rabbi across the board. They would never use it because, again, they, they hold the torch against rabbinic Judaism. Um, and when they started doing this, and, and indeed they don't use the term, it, I know assimilated Karaites in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, who refer to their leaders as the Chazen which is also deriving a rabbinic word, they just want to use the technical word rabbi. Um, Because of that, pay attention to this, Jews will start to reintroduce the word rabbi. Remember, we don't really have legitimate rabbis insofar as we don't have smicha anymore. Remember this? We lost smicha, we used the term, but now Jews, as a self-conscious anti karaite statement, they're saying, this is a rabbi. And we're going to find increasingly the term is used as a, as a backlash against the Karaites, who you have to realize during this late period of the Gaonim and throughout the Rishonim uh, are a real force to reckon with. And we're going to hear about them. They really, they really threatened um, you know, to, to, to draw many Jews away from, uh, uh, from, from norm, normative Judaism. Now, probably they numbered, if not, in the, if not in the millions, then at least in the hundreds of thousands, there may have been as many as 40% of the world's Jewish population. They had their own separate autonomous institutions. Many of them reached high positions of authority throughout the Muslim world. So they they, they were quite a big deal. I mean, maybe we don't know about that. We don't feel their presence today. Their golden age is usually is usually understood between around between the year 900 and 1100 of the Common Era. That's when Karaites were really a force to reckon with. Um, Rav Saadjigaon writes eloquently against them. Uh, Rambam saw them as a serious threat. Uh, Today, they exist. Their numbers are debated. They claim that it's up to 50,000, probably they're a lot fewer. It's impossible to know since demographics aren't clear. Uh, The Nazis didn't care. The Nazis killed anybody with one Jewish uh, grandparent, so certainly Karaites, as far as the Nazis were concerned, were Jews, um, but they, they're around. They, you can find um, traces of them. There was, until, the, until very recently, a large group in Cairo, in Egypt, uh, also in the former Soviet Union. Uh, there remain people of Karaite descent. Uh, as I mentioned, I knew, I knew these Jews in the San Francisco Bay Area who were indistinguishable from Reformed Jews. Meaning they were also assimilated, you know, good old American kids. You, you would never know the difference, except their heritage is Karaites. They're the Karaites. It's very, uh, although like Karait magazines and like Karaites. Uh, its It's not that prominent and organized. they organized? But they are they're not that organized. Right. Meaning they have a magazine requires a readership base. Well I was thinking there is something be, be that would be the best way for them to take uh, to <coughs> They're take more care. of they're more of a museum piece and artifact. And I mentioned you can go in the old city and you can go to the you can go to the museum. In the old city, uh, which is above the bagel shop it's and the across from Ferris the the museum, the the Hasidish shul. shul. It's a shul that's also a museum. No, it's a museum. It's definitely you can go there as a tour and they have glass case exhibits. No, yeah, well, like, in addition to being a shul it's also, it's the it's their ancient shul in Yerushalayim that they also use they, it doubles as a museum no, but I think they're building like uh, next door they're building an uh, actual museum oh, that may be, but I mean, I, I know I've been through there as a museum per se, and they also have their center is in Ramla uh, uh, in the center of Israel is there a unified, there's, there's no unification, like there's no unified head of the Kirite movement right now there have been There have been, and that's usually based in Ramla. I don't know his name. Um, You you can go and get a tour, and I sometimes bring groups there, and I find all this stuff is edifying. Uh, And it reinforces our own knowledge of ourselves, and our experience in history has not been straightforward. it's, It's a challenge to us to understand that there have been so many splinter groups. It makes the survival of normative Torah Jews all the more remarkable when we endure this kind of challenge. Now... Uh, there were some great Geonim, and we haven't talked about almost we've almost avoided all of them and giving all these interesting side points about the muslims and the khazars and the karaites um, and also the the first major anybody remember the name of the persian false messiah oh, abu you, Isa, abu issa many other colorful stories from this period but um gaonim will emerge now and i'm going to mention a few one of their big main accomplishments is they see with this new mobility. Jews are traveling now more than they have in the past, leading to a greater Jewish cohesiveness. We're somehow connected in a way that we hadn't been in previous centuries. But isn't that as a result of the separation from traveling? Like like it was cohesiveness that only, like, like the cohesiveness which is a plus only made up for the subtraction of cohesiveness when right it's true but, but, but in other words we were disunified previously anyway now that they're traveling they're a little bit more tied together and they're increasingly aware of widespread Jewish ignorance um, and especially in matters of halacha people don't know maybe they have copies of the Talmud you remember you remember one of the Gaoni Rav Netra and I went to Spain and wrote a whole Talmud from memory yeah that's pretty good. anybody can do that here anybody working on it the um, the good uh, trick if you can figure it out the uh, right but a lot of people don't know how to apply the Talmud to daily life which is of course if Torah is not a living Torah then we then, then there's something disastrous, disastrously wrong um, and especially people who can't learn or don't know enough to send shilas to the center in bavel um, so here are three major phenomena that take place. Uh, when exactly is a bit of a question. We've, the, the dates are fuzzier in this period, Ilan. But, uh, but around the 8th century, that means in the 700s, we find Rav Achai Gaon, which is often confused with Rav, with Rav Hai Gaon, one of the last of the Gaonim. Don't do that. Two different people, two different periods. The 8th century, one of the early Gaonim is Rav Achai Gaon, who authored the first post-Talmudic history, called the Sheiltos of Rav, Hai, of Rav Achai Gaon, appropriately enough, uh, which is also doubles as the first practical halachic manual ever. I mean, unless you call the Talmud a halachic manual, but it's kind of hard to pass <laughs> for the pages of, of Shas, and the Sheiltos is a halachic companion as much as it is a story of Klal Yisrael. Now, it's interesting. Rav Achai technically never reached the position of Gaon, which was the Rosh shiva in and Pumbadisa, not for lack of trying. He was passed over by others, even though he was the Gatolador. I don't know if this story sounds familiar to you, but this is not the only time that we find the most impressive luminary of a generation who somehow they picked the other guy. The or, well, yeah, he was definitely, that's a good example of somebody not, not fully recognized even while he was alive as being a Gatol. For sure, but there are many other position people who, yeah, right. The logical person for the job is this. Let's let's ins- instead we'll install uh sh- Shmuelik like, in the like position. In, uh, when there was the big coup uh, with oh. the Rabbi Young, though, right? With uh, oh, right, Rabbi Gamliel. They had they had the young Rabbi Lazer Ben Azaria. Good example. When was there a case of Rabbi Shmuel first, second, the guy was there. Oh, that's interesting. The the, the race Galusa they gave they gave oh, they that, gave also Levy starts. Levy was there right right so they're, they're, good 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 you're all in it's very good uh, right okay so this was that was the story of his life he um, wait, so he who was, was the second one? What uh, it was Rav Levy then Shmuel but and then Sheila was was the reish Galusa but they gave him no 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 preference no, when you said when you said who else was, oh who else did I have in mind wait have how about Doeg felt that he was worthy. Ravam felt that he was worthy. He was passed over, but those were, they were mistaken. David was truly the guttle then. Uh, no, there are other times. I don't know. I, I didn't have anything in mind, but I'm sure there are lots we could brainstorm. Okay. In any case, um, in about the year 752, he left Bavel for Tiveria, and there he stayed until he died. Tiveria. We're going to hear increasingly. You know, that was the place. If you couldn't be in Bavel, you go. You went to Tiveria. Um, now the Shiltos. Is divided by parsha. It's still a work that's learned in yeshivas. The idea was to encourage every Jew, even a layperson without much background, to study and learn. You could learn parsha, you could learn history, you could learn learn, learn halacha, practical halacha. Uh, it's a There's It's a lot of a lot of stories. Um, it's very clear. The Sefer Kabbalah, one of our history books from this period, the Rivein Sefer Kabbalah says to this day, not a single error has been discovered in it. that's pretty good praise. You kind of want somebody to say that about your book. Um, One example is uh, something that I mentioned recently that we learned from the Sheiltos. It was in the Sheiltos that I found the Chiddush that Bnei Noach indeed are still, since Matan Torah, obligated in Puruvu. Remember I mentioned this one recently? uh, um, Which seems to run counter to the the Gemara and Sanhedrin, but it's the Netziv, the Nitziv writes one of the definitive peirushim on the sheiltos, what's called HaEmek Shelah, great classic work by the, of the Nitziv on the shiltoh, making the shiltoh sort of rediscovering the shiltoh in the 19th century for a lot of uh, a lot of Talmud Chachamim, and there he reconciles the different sources and said it's not a contradiction. Moran Ben is talking about this, and the sheiltos is talking about something else. Uh, that's the first work from this period that I wanted to talk about. Um, there's another figure who leads uh, who from the Center of surah named Rab Yehudai Gaon. Notice the style of names: Achai Yehudai Yehudai Gaon. Right. So, uh, so he leaves. He leads surah between 757 and 761. Um, And this is his. This is his claim to fame. He understood that the Bavli should be between the Bavli and the the Yeshamay should be the more dominant of the works studied. So, maybe the fact that we have that today is partly due to his tradition. Um, And when he says this, the Jews from Eretz Yisrael who are not happy, and they say, No, the Yerushalmi is better. It becomes a turf battle, right? Bavli versus Yerushalmi. Uh, The Bavli wins, clearly, in our tradition. He is blind. He's called Or HaOlam, the light of the world, which is typically euphemistic. That's that's often how we refer refer to the blind people as soggy nahor, getting enough light. Um, He taught, and his Talmudian collected his teachings in a book called Halachos Psukos, Paskind Halachas, which is the first post-Talmudic work of short piske halacha, making it even easier to know... Bottom line, Rabbi, what do I do? In other words, from this generation in, this, in the eighth century, it's this generation's equivalent of the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, right? It's an abbreviated. There's no Shulchan Aruch yet, but it's an abbreviated version, the first of its kind, um, to uh, to give people the practical halacha. It's it's pro is it's simultaneously it's con. You know what's good about it is simultaneously its deficiency. It's just the bottom line. If you look in the Halachos Psukos, you'll look in vain to find any background information, machlokis, the development of Halacha. He just tells you this is way I Pasukim. But since as Halachic students, we care about, well, tell me the can give me the svara, and is it a Tana, is it an Amora, what's the machlokis? who says what? And without that, we're not so clear that that's the way the Halacha should follow. But it's a precedent, the Halachos Psukos, and it'll be an influence on future works of Halacha as well. Now, it's the next, the last book I want to talk about is the Halachos Gedolos. Um, and some say it was also written by Rav Yehudai Gaon, the same figure who wrote the Halachos Psukos. Um, the author is referred to as the Bahag, the Baal Halachos Gedolos, a very no, famous work. Is he the one that said, uh, Turn, is that Ben-Bagbag, that said, um, That's Ben-Bagbag. The Bahag is a Gaon. Oh, he's not the the so that Not uh, that it's a, not a Mitzvah to believe in God. No. Or, no, that it's um, not a Mitzvah to actively search it's for the Mitzvah. It's the first... There are contrary opinions about the, the Mitzvahs. Between the Rambam and the, the Bahag. That would make sense. I, you have to look inside. I, don't, I want to... On such a thing. I want to make sure you say, say it clearly. But this is the first... The 613? This is the first time we have the 613 Mitzvahs. Enumerated. I'll explain what that means in a moment. Um, it's one of the first post-Talmudic codes of halacha, um, and among its achievements is to enumerate the mitzvahs. It's, o- it's not the only thing going on in the Bahag, in the, in the, in the halachos gedolos, um, but it's certainly the first famous... Enumeration of the mitzvahs, and oh, there you go, Sefer Mitzvahs. Right? So hold it up for a second as a display. That's the Rambam's equivalent, and the Rambam this disagrees is the often with the, with the Bahad. It's the Chavitz Chaim. This is the Mitzvah. It's the Chofetz Chaim's uh, edition of the yeah. book of the mitzvahs, of the Sefer Mitzvahs. Um, you realize that we have a tradition from Chazal that there are 613 mitzvahs, Tariag mitzvahs, in love and Garti, Garti, Tariag, tariag mitzvahs, Shemarti. Uh, Rashi brings that, and we have the tradition, but nowhere in Shas or Medrash or any any area of Talmudic literature do we find the enumeration of the 613. So this is the first attempt to actually try to find and count what are the actual 248 lavim and the rest as-asim, but what are the actual mitzvahs? As we said, it's subject to debate. The Rambam's version is certainly famous, and some would say it's decisive, but even the Rambam's version is debated by Lainer Poskin. Um, some say it's Rav Yehudai. Others say it was his student Rav Shimon Kayara, or he may have had an influence on Shimon Kayara. Um, it's also the first Gaonic work to follow the msechtis, the, the order of the Mesehtas. So you can actually be learning Masechtas Kedushin and find material... I mean, we're, today we're spoiled rotten because we have all these great commentaries on the Da, but you realize if you're learning Talmud back then, the, this is the, one of the first works that you can actually open up and try to find a reference to find any meaning in the text if you're not sure what it means. Um, it's also the first work to cite everything that came before. So in the Halachos Gedolos you'll find references to the Bavli, to the Ushalmi, to the Sheiltos, to the Halakos uh, Psukos. It's like an integrative kind of a work. You want to say? Um, The Chinuch follows the Rambam's enumerations, not the Bahad, although he makes reference to the Bahad, but the Rambam is is his guide. Um, There's some really colorful figures from this period. Around the 9th century, in the 800s, there's a figure that emerges by the name of Eldad Hadani. And in the name, you already might be able to pick up what's going on? Who's Eldad Hadani or at least who does he claim to be? Well, not quite, but Eldad Hadani claims to descend from the tribe of Dan, which means, hey, one of the lost tribes. And when they start coming back, then indeed you get an indication that maybe, uh, you promised to be here and you are. Uh, The... one of the last drives, maybe that means that Mashiach is around the corner if somehow somebody who claims to come from Don is coming back, maybe uh, indeed you know, Mashiach is on his way Don't now he know. traveled around the Jewish world in the 9th century he told fanciful tales um, he claims to come from the Jewish state located in the continent of Africa you know the Jewish state, and I don't think he was referring to Uganda. Anybody knows a little modern history about the Uganda pro- uh, proposal. Uh, but he says there was a Jewish state in Africa in which the tribes of Dan, Asher, Gad, and Naftali, the Bnei Ashfachos, live by a separate system of halacha that they wrote in the name of Yoshua bin Nun. Now picture this. You're, you're during, living during this period, and during, during the 9th century, this figure comes comes around you don't know otherwise he's either lying or telling the truth wouldn't you want to believe that he's telling the truth I mean it's such an appealing package why not who would make up such a story unless maybe somebody trying to get a little you know little uh, extra money or self aggrandizement he also claims that he knows about the other tribes who are lost and that they live in areas in and around the Middle East he describes the Sambachon. Remember that magical uh, uh, island where they're trapped, surrounded by either fire or, or stones. Um, now the question is, who was this Eldad Adani, and is he somebody to take him seriously? There was a Gaon, one of the Russian yeshiva, named Simcha ben Chaim of Surah, one of the main yeshivas, who seems to have endorsed Eldad Adani and his stories as true and authentic. Well, wow, you know, I mean, if you get endorsement from Gadol Hador, from the Gaon and the Surah itself, maybe he was true. Uh, if you learn writings by later sages, Rav Chazda ibn Shaprut, even Rashi, mention Elda Hadani and might be, you can learn them in such a way that they seem to accept him as being sort of legitimate. Notice my tentative way of phrasing it. But there are many others who say, no, he was a charlatan. The Ibn Ezra questioned him, the Maharam questions him. Uh, they suggest that the Gaon's approval had been forged, and it wasn't real, and that people were duped. What you do have is an early example of a figure that we're going to be seeing a lot of as the centuries unfold of this, if not exactly false messiah, this false harbinger of the messianic era who comes and gets everybody's hopes up, who, who sets everybody's imaginations Working and and and, and uh, considering that the messianic era is around the corner, Eldad Adani is one of the early figures of this of this ilk. <coughs> A few more gaonim. Rav Amram Gaon, also from the 9th century. We have we have his uh, approximate death date is around 875. Was also the in Sura, and he's very famous because he wrote the first Sidur. <coughs> it's the first complete Sidur, which reflects the Euridos Hadoros, the continuing <coughs> decline of the Jews. What was previously obvious and basic, you need a Sidur to <coughs> daven. It used to, it used to be, this was aleph based. Of course, every child in school knows all of davening by heart. Um, but now, it was not so obvious. And in <coughs> fact, the Jews of Spain sent to Bavel with a specific shayla saying, we don't know how to daven anymore. What should we do? And he responded in a lengthy tshuva. That's what it was effectively. It was a letter in response. And that letter would, take, would eventually be accepted as the first complete sidur. Al- by Rav Amram Gaon. Didn't Rav Al- sidur? Yes, but this is the first the um we also know the confusion is compounded because there at this time in history there are many oral traditions leading to many alternate Nuschaus formulas of hadadavan and it's sometime probably around this period almost certainly around this period that Ashkenaz and Sfard asphadi Mizrah, will will diverge one from the other so to clarify that Rav Amram Gaon writes this chuva. Uh, <coughs> it's the basis of both Sephardi and Ashkenazi tefillah Meaning everything is set down in there what's, interestingly, what's interesting about it Is that even though he wrote it for Spanish Jewry You can find elements of Ashkenazi Nusach more distinctly Than the Sephardi Nusach. Meaning it's, more, it's clearly more influential On the development of later Ashkenazi than, than uh, Sephardi you know, Mizrach davening Even though it certainly influences both That's with Amram Gaon we find in the same period, the late ninth century, the late eight hundreds, Rav Netronai ben Hilai Gaon, who was the head of Sura as well. Many of them led Sura. Sura is obviously a very prominent place. He wrote a lot of tshuvas. Uh, he also wrote tshuvas to Spanish, the Spanish Jewish community. It's Rav Netronai. Here are some of his claims to fame. He is the first to list. You know, we the Gemara ceases that all of us should be saying a hundred brachos every day. That's why in Shabbos we have lots of nash. Because so we, we have fewer brachos, we're saying formally, so we try to supplement. So he actually lists the hundred brachos that a Jew should be saying every day, based on the Gemara and Menachos. Does that include brach, or vishan, and vishan? Like, does, does that, does for example and I don't know. You'd have to look it up. Go, go reference Rav Netronai Ben Hilayagon and see, see how he counts the the hundred. I don't, I don't have that in my mind. Um, he also has an interesting tshuva about Karaites. He writes that. Um, they, if, if Karaite is sincerely repentant, they don't need to convert. There's a maybe because they broke off from normative Judaism, they need a formal conversion to come back. He says, no, 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 they're Jews. They don't need to convert. Um, they should, in fact, if they really are, they're really Bali tshuva, they should be encouraged to return. Uh, and then a Shiloh comes up, what about a Karaite who wants to make Chuva and wants to join the rabbinic community again, um, but the only thing he does that's a little bit odd is on Pesach, they notice this one Karaite would only say the psukim from the Haggadah, but not the rest, because the rest was rabbinic in its tradition. And Rav Netranai Paskind, he says, the man is a kofer, he's a heretic, put him in cherim, excommunicate him. <laughs> and, 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 uh, I mean, occur- Conversion is not necessary, but he's not going to be integrated in, uh, into the Jewish people. Into, into a normative rabbinic tradition. Is that? Um. Okay. Um, we find Rav Semach ben Poltoi Gaon, leading Pombadisa between the years 872 and 890. I'm just giving you highlights. There are many more figures from this period, but these are these are names to, that stand out. Um, he, he writes a tshuva that becomes the first dictionary of Aramaic. His tshuva of Semach Ben Poltoy is called the Aruch, and to make things exciting, there are two Aruchs. This is the first. Just because Jewish history should never be too overly easy, you know. Just yeah, Khasu Shalom. So this Aruch, why was there a need for a dictionary at this point in time? What it reflects is a new cultural reality. The Jews around the world mostly spoke. Uh, Hebrew. The language that they were. No, Hebrew's Hebrew. long dormant. What are they speaking? What's the lingua Franco now? Latin. Not Yiddish, Yiddish not born yet. Latin. Not Latin, oh, certainly uh, not. Latin. Not Ladino, no way. Not 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 English. not for many centuries but now. Arabic. Arabic. The Muslim world is dominant. Most Jews around the Mediterranean basin where they're based are speaking Arabic. <laughs> and so increasingly they're not conversant in, in Aramaic, and our major texts of course are in Arabic. Aramaic. I thought Arabic and Aramaic. Though. They are, but different enough that you need a dictionary. So he writes the first dictionary. It's Aramaic-Arabic Dictionary. It's so interesting. The Jews needed the Aramaic-Arabic Dictionary at this time in history. Um, we're going to see in the period of the Gaonim and Rishonim some of the great works were written in Arabic first. Like, anybody know? Guide the Perplexed. Guide the Perplexed. In, the Moran was written. Rambam wrote in Arabic. What else? The Kuzari was in Arabic. The Rambam's... Um, Rambams. Intro to the Mishnah. Intro to the Mishnah, <laughs> right. Um, right. And, and many, uh, many... Of, uh, logic and right, writing. right, 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 right. Many other works are written in Arabic. That's reflected here. Um, but this aruch is, a very, is an abridged version. It's a forerunner of, a, of Rashi, for example, often refers to the aruch when he gives you words, translating words from the Talmud. But he's referring to the later, more elaborate, more impressive aruch. That comes out in the 11th century. That's it. Uh, do we have this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is again. So that's the ninth century, the later one comes out in the 11th century. Um, meanwhile, Sur and Pumbedisa are the major yeshivas. When Rav Amram, the author of the first Sidur, dies, for reasons that we don't really know, Pumbedisa moves to Baghdad, where there are more Jews. And shortly after that, Surah moves to Baghdad, where there are more Jews. They keep the name. Kind of like Mir and Tells keep the name, even once they move to other places. They keep the name of the former city. uh, And they remain the definitive center of the Torah world for the next couple centuries. um, For 150 years, I should be more specific. Uh, They'll also retain their distinct minhagim, even though they're going to experience decline. Uh, So what happened to the original? The Jews, the Jews mostly start gravitating away from Bavel. As times change and persecution and, and demographic shift, uh, by the time Binyamin Metudella, I keep mentioning him, remember our traveler who comes in the 1100s visiting the Middle East and a source of a lot of interesting information in history? So Binyamin Metudella in his diary writes that in 1170... Around 1170, he visits the original <coughs> Pumbedisa, the original location. Pumbedisa, you have to realize, has been uh, an, an immense center for the times, from the times certainly, uh, especially during the Amoraim, but certainly during the Esseboraim and the Geonim too, hundreds and hundreds of years. And by the time Binyamin Mitudella visits there in 1170, he found only 3,000 Jews living there. And when he got to Surah, no Jews were there. Surah! Gone, abandoned, no Jews. Why? Where did go? he go? Why did he go? Because he wanted to. No, re- did go? Where did he go? He went around. Oh, he went all over. All, we'll went, talk about Binyam. I mean, Where did the Jews go? Oh, they, they, they Baghdad here, there, Baghdad around. They scattered around the world. We're going to talk about Jewish dispersion. That's going to that's going to be increasingly an important su- subject for us. But uh, but most of them gravitated up to Baghdad. That became the, that became the next center. Um, so when Surah he writes about visiting various. He visited, remember I mentioned he visited Bustanai and he found, he found um, where were they located exactly? Mordechai Esther, he found Yechezkel uh, and Yechonia and some of the great, uh, the great uh, personalities who perished in Babel. Um, listen to this. Today, we don't know where the original, hold off for just a second, we don't know originally where the original Surah and Pubadis are located. We estimate, we don't know for sure. That's on that map, that's a guess. No, isn't that wild? So you think about this. These places that were the central addresses of Klael Yisrael, that we, we depended on these places for everything. Shilas were directed here for hundreds of years, are off the map now. Golos is transient. Yeah. Uh, I just talked about this during uh, Shabbos, but uh, I thought Mordechai moved back to Israel back and forth several times oh yeah okay. but he uh, the main idea is that he did die in uh, don't know <coughs> There's a, there was a tradition of a grave for him in Babel. Right, that, that, as we've right. talked How about in the past traditions done. for grave, uh, don't, graves don't always uh, reflect reality You've got a in a could be yeah. the Beni Shai has a caver in, in, in uh, Baghdad and a caver on Harazesim so go figure so, a lot of the. You can't, you can't always derive history from where, where graves are located. Graves sometimes are as easy as putting up a sign yeah. and suddenly becomes a fact on the ground. And the many people Hades do that. The 1900s, right? What's that? Ben Kai is from the 19th century. So Not 1900s. 19, yeah, oh, yeah, he yeah, did early yeah, 1900s, yeah. correct. So, we should know where he's We should, shouldn't we? So, we don't? He's probably buried yeah, in Baghdad, but there's know. somehow a tradition that developed that is in Harizasim, and there's a grave that people go and they make they have a hilula, they make a pilgrimage there, maybe, maybe and there's is, a story that they, they they either tell a legitimate story or, or somebody concocted it that they airlifted his remains and they reburied him here, and people didn't know about it. No, no, it's like, Wouldn't no, we? Wouldn't you think? Yeah. Okay, Lamai Kamina, I don't know if if, if by having two, it, it doubles your chances of telling great stories about it, Ben Ishai, I'm all in favor. Why not? But if you're looking for authenticity, then you have reason to be skeptical. Maybe he's buried in both. Maybe he's buried in both. Maybe they took an arm here and a leg there. No, yeah, but like, doesn't it seem like someone is buried in the, the and they, and they All very possible and, and ultimately unknowable. Rav Sa'adja Gaon, Rav Sa'adja ben Yosef, his dates are given between 882 and 942, is arguably the most or one of the most famous prominent of all the Gaonim. Uh, And he's really unusual, and he had a very hard and interesting life. I'm going to summarize it as follows. He was born in Egypt. He's the first Gadol to write extensively in Arabic. Almost all of his works were in Arabic. He has works on halacha, on linguistics, on philosophy. We mentioned how uh, Hebrew grammar was very much an issue in these days. So Saadia is a major authority on these subjects. He translates almost the entire, not the entire, but almost the entire Tanakh into Arabic. One of the first translations, I mean, they translated it into Greek, so he translated to Arabic, only to help the Jews, because that was the language they spoke. He wanted them to be conversant. He wanted them to know their Tanakh. He also spoke Greek and Latin fluently. He was an astronomer, he was a mathematician, and all of them were to reach the Jews of his time and a way of showing his integrated Torah outlook. Interestingly, and not coincidentally, we've talked about this before. When you read other histories, uh, like secular historians will say, "Oh, he was a Renaissance man. He was into secular studies," and they like to they like to re- recast uh, Rabsagi Gaon in their own image, um, much like David Melech. They'll say David Melech was a, was a secular studies uh, professor, or he was a statesman and a warrior. But like David Melech, Ravsaji Gaon was most definitely. Uh, a Torah giant, first and last, and all of these were extensions of his Torah focus, even though he was clearly talented and an autodidact. Um, he actually traced his descent descendants to one of the great Tanayim, Rabbi Chinin Ben Dosa, with all the miracles of Rabbi Chinin Ben Dosa, uh, who, for whom Hashem made the oil, the vinegar light like oil. Um, and in fact, he called his own son, Dosa, after his ancestor. Um, Dosa would later be a gaon in Surah in the early 11th century. When um, he was very young, Rav left Egypt and he left to go study in Tiberia. When he was 20, he published his book called Sefer Ha'Egron, which is a, 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 it was and remains a masterpiece on Hebrew grammar at 20. Anybody 20 years old here by chance? Have you yet published your... Anyway, at twenty, Saadia published his. When he was twenty-three, he wrote a. He published a polemic, which means a, an anti, uh, a, a diatribe, a, a work against the Karaites, Anand ben David, and all the followers. Um, he actually was very, very. He was a powerhouse, a charismatic figure. He was successful in persuading many Karaites to return to uh, the rabbinic fold rabbinic Judaism. Uh, And he was zealous, uncompromising. He pursued the Karaites. If they didn't come around, he wanted them to to, to be intimidated. And they were by him. Uh, When anybody was even remotely uh, uh, interested in coming back, he was very maykill. He said, come back. He accepted them without any penalty. You want to make tshuva by all means. His work was called a great name. It's called Kala Anan Vehalach which is a pun. It's a play on words based on a pasuk in Eov. But if you hear the words Kala based on the pasuk, it really means um, Anan, the light one, uh, went light and then disappeared as he hoped would happen to the Karaites, that they would walk, in the, walk, uh, walk off in the distance and disappear to the horizon. Didn't quite work out that way. Um, and it refutes Karaism decisively. And the Karaites aren't happy And one day they break into his house and they gather his writings and they burn them. When you wrote in the ancient world, you wrote usually one copy, maybe two, and they burned his his books. Uh, That's a tragedy. National disaster. And ultimately, it's one of the catalysts that that caused him to leave Egypt and then Eretz Yisrael. And he eventually, in the year 915, left for Baalvel. And he went to live in the Torah center of Baalvel. And in around 922, uh, the next, I just was talking about this in guiding, the next um, political confrontation emerged, this time in Eretz Yisrael, in Tveria. A figure by the name of Aaron Meir was a uh, descendant of the Davidic line there. Remember, there was a quasi nazi system in place in, in Tveria. And he challenged Bovel's supremacy by saying, we don't accept the Jewish calendar in Bovel. We're in Eretz Israel, we can declare the new month, and he proposes a new calendar system. And you might think, okay, you know, that's just a, you know, just a pedantic argument, but do you realize the implications? You have a different calendar, you're different people. You, know, you break off, you have a whole new system. You know, we, we live by our calendar. That's, that's how we know how to organize our lives, and if, if he's going to get away with it, uh, the Jewish people's in trouble. So he writes a letter He sends it all around the Jewish world, all throughout the Mediterranean. You know what I mean when I keep saying the Mediterranean basin? North Africa, South Europe, the Middle East, you know, where all the Jews are located. And the letter circulates with his new idea and his new calendar. And he says, Rosh Hashanah this coming year is falling on the following date. And it was at odds with Bavel, so now you had to pledge allegiance Who are you going gonna to lie with? You're going to lie with this Rab Aaron Mayor, you're going to lie with Bavel. And Bavel is the seat of the Masaira. That's where everything is uh, still authoritative. So he writes this. And Rab Saadia <laughs> writes the response. And he sends his response. Uh, his response is so authoritative, it's so clearly masterful. He's such an obvious godal his knowledge of Torah is so heads and tails over Rav Aaron Meir's that that one letter closes the whole case. No more discussion, and it ruins Rav Aaron Meir's reputation. Once upon a time, the written word was that power, powerful. Today, eh, you know, you can write anything, and somebody's going to post it, and the, they'll refute you the next day, and you don't, tra- you don't take anything seriously. When Rav go and said his letter around, that closed the whole, whole ep- episode. And what it meant, among other things, is Rav Sa'adji Gaon, not because he was trying to do this, but everybody recognized him as the new gadol hador. When you can that decisively close a a controversy, uh, the Jewish people is is indebted to you. So much so that back in Bavel, the Reish Galusa, a figure by the name of David Ben Zakai, is motivated to appoint Rav Sa'adji as the Gaon of Surah He is very young relative to when they, they become, usually you're much older, he was only 46 years old when he becomes the Gaon in Surah, and he's the first non-Babylonian to be the Gaon in Surah, and anywhere, in anywhere, in any, in, in, in any Babylonian institution. They were always homegrown, but Saadia from Egypt was, is the first non-bubble born uh, sage. And when he becomes the Gaon in Surah, the Masitsa, the yeshiva, flourishes. People flock to him from around the world. This is a pattern we also see in history, when a clear Gadol emerges. Everybody wants connections. That's uh, not always the case. It's not always been true that we know for sure who the Gadol Ador is, but when Rav Sa'adji emerges, everybody wants to learn his Torah. And two years later, the same David Ben Zakai, the rish Galusa, who had appointed Rav Sa'adji, Rav is now jealous. And he, you know, he says in his own mind, I created a monster. Now this man's way too prominent, and he's outshadowed me. And there are some intense power struggles and clashes. Uh, David ben Zakai, the Rish gets the caliph, the Muslim caliph, involved, and succeeds in removing Rav Saadia from the position of Gaon. Rab Saadia puts Zakai in cherem. Not a pretty, not a pretty uh, series of events. And the community of Bavel is split in a power struggle. It further uh, spells the decline of Bavel. Not a, not a good time for the Babylonian community. Eventually, Rav Sa'adi has to go into hiding. His, in, his life is endangered. Um, I don't know if you know, you know, like you picture sometimes our ancient sages leaving these kind of gilded lives, writing their books in ivory towers and so on. Uh, they didn't have it so easy. And I'm even summarizing and simplifying. He was, he was lit, living underground. Now, many say that was a blessing in this size. Some, they say that many of his great works were produced during this period. He had 24 works that, we ha- that he produced. Many were lost, but some of them we have till today. I'll mention what they are. Um, Twelve years of fighting pass, and finally, after 12 years, Rab Saadia and Domin Ben Zakai reconcile. No hard feelings. Meanwhile, the Jewish community has suffered and declined in the result. Um, He becomes the Gaon again for five more years. Ben-Zakai dies, and talk about no hard feelings, what a tzaddik, Rav Saadia adopts his grandson. His grandson doesn't have a place to live, and he takes in the grandson of his former enemy, his former foe. Um, He dies five years later at the age of 60. Uh, Based on the descriptions, he probably dies from black gall. Uh, Some say it's a terrible painful malady uh, that it was caused, The Sefer Kabbalah says it was caused because of all the tension and strife in his life. Um, Rav Saaji leaves us with some great works. He writes one of the early, earliest commentaries on the Chumash. Uh, it's in that commentary, among other great accomplishments, Rav, and you can find it in some of the Mikros Kedolos. You have, not very long, but you have Rav Sa'adji going, if anybody's looked. Not everyone has it, but some of them have Rav Sa'aji's commentary commentary. Um, you, he explains which of the 613 commandments correspond to the Ten Commandments. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We, Chazal teaches that all taryag are under the general rubric of the Ten, but you have to know how to match them up. So Rav Saadiyah does that. Rashi makes a reference to this. Um, his other probably most famous work, yeah? Where does he use the, um, the mishnah Gadolah? No, no, he has his own system. But like he's six thirteen, though he makes. Oh, oh, oh! oh, That's interesting question. Oh, but I see what you're saying. Excellent question. I don't know. I assume that he would follow the Baha'i, but it's a good question. I I don't know. Um, His other major work—I mean, his lots of works—but the other one that's very famous is called *Emuna Videos* (Faith and and uh, Ideas), which is the. Listen to this. It's the first. It's a lot of firsts in the Gaonic period. It's the first systematic attempt to explain philosophy from a Torah perspective. And why? Why bother? And the answer is because the Jews had become assimilated and followed the Arabic culture, and the Arabic culture was heavily philosophical, pondering deep questions of why and how in the universe. And um, a Jew, and uh, the Jewish leader trying to reach the people of his times, tried to teach Torah by speaking the philosophical jargon of the times to convey the basic Torah ideas that they would need to know as Jews. And so as such, he writes this em- emunavideos as an attempt to explain philosophy, but in Torah terms, it's to counter the influence of Islam. His conclusion is one of the famous lines in all of Chazal, ein umaseinu, Uma ele our nation is only a nation, Because of our Tyra, this is a work that's going to influence the Guzari, the Guide to the Perplexed, the Mordavuchim, and many other works. Um, Last thing I'm going to talk about today, uh, just a quick aside. Um, Quickly, let's hop across the Mediterranean basin to the Iberian Peninsula and see what's going on in Spain. Spain, we're vaguely aware, there's some Jews there. It's not yet a Torah center. That's coming tomorrow. Um, but we know in the early 8th century, the Muslims moved to Spain, and um, they're actually fairly tolerant. Well, I'm, re- I'm using the word Spain, which is a modern term. It's actually divided into lots of different duchies and provinces and so on. Catalonia, and, right, all the various different, different right? Bastille, right? So, but, um, but it's an appealing place, and they're relatively tolerant and the Jews seek new frontiers, and Jews will increasingly go there for new opportunities. Uh, The the Iberian Iberian Peninsula is vast and very fertile, so you could make a reasonable living there, and so Jews start to gravitate. And what we will find in the coming centuries, Spain starts to represent this unprecedented new new chance for the Jews, arguably not equaled until the United States. we talked about the golden age of Spain, lasts about from the year 1000 till, till 1250, give or take, and there are interruptions, because the, Spanish, the Muslims are gonna fight the Catholics for supremacy, usually when the Catholics override the Muslims, it's not good for us. The Muslims were better for the Jews. Uh, there'll be other interruptions of anti-Semitism. The Muslims are not uniformly good. The Almohads and others are, are, are wicked. So it's not. I, I don't mean to oversimplify here. Uh, not all Muslims are equally tolerant. Um, the whole thing is going to crash to an end with the with the reconquest by the Christians, and the Jews almost can't resist the allure. When they're in Spain, they fall prey to the very rich culture, the very uh, inclusive, inviting, um, uh, attractive. Uh, it's not. It's. It's. I, I. We talked about the Muslim culture. It's got a quite a, quite an allure. And they're going to pay the price in both assimilation, but when the, when the Jews find this, in, we find this in history, when the Jews assimilate, it usually one of the responses is anti-Semitism. The goyim hate us more. And that will be a response to uh, for trying to live in both worlds. So we'll assimilate and the, non, the non-Jews will oppress us more. They so have a, a, a double whammy cocktail. Um, in general, I'm going to say a couple major things now. The Muslims... Will be the dominant force in the world, but very slowly we're going to find in the period of the Rishonim they're going to awaken the Christian world from like like a sleeping lion from their dark ages. We're going to slowly hear hints of how the Christian world is going to rise up, um, and what one finds you can say that the last thousand years of history, as the Jews experienced it, is more or less a struggle between the Muslims and the Christians for supremacy and they're up and down and up and down, and the Jews are usually so much collateral damage. Whoever's winning, it really doesn't matter because the Jews almost always lose. Yeah, I sort of like that. Sort of like that. But that's, that's the dynamic now, and I'm saying this as an introduction to the coming weeks. We're going to be, we're going to be experiencing this vicariously. The conflict is going to drive much of Western civilization up until and including the modern day. Because what you're seeing unfolding was as isis uh, continually beheads and they just beheaded one of the japanese uh uh um uh civilians hostages, hostages. hostages so so you know this is what you see still unfolding and its resolution is not in we understand it's it's mochemist gogamago gishmael Asav, and all the rest um spain meanwhile is split in, in all these little small districts with rival caliphates and each one is struggling against one or the other. And what, what, another dynamic we find is the Jews will start to have their own internal conflicts because they live here, they're loyal to the king of Granada. Whereas over here, they're loyal to the king of Seville. And that will be another dynamic that will unfold as we leave the Goonic period and go into the early Rishonic.